Surprise, it's me again. <laughs> um, today, as you saw in the video and from the slide, we get to talk about the sovereignty of God. Um, so every year, towards the end of the year, Pastor Derek, our lead pastor, he uh, takes some time to pray and think and talk and pray and think and start to develop the sermon map for the next year. Um, and so it was funny, uh, after he does that and he feels like he's got it all charted out, then he takes that sermon map, his kind of first rough draft, and he sends it on uh, to the executive team and to the board, and we look at it, and we review it, and just see if we have two cents to add to it or any thoughts on what he's got mapped out in that rough draft. And so I was looking over the sermon map for 2019 when he had it completed, and I knew that we as a church family, we had all already agreed that we were going to go through the Real God campaign, and I was super pumped about it. I was so excited about this campaign because I just sincerely believe that God honestly is going to do something significant in our church family through this Real God campaign. When we as a church at all ages take eight weeks together to say, God, we want to know you for who you are. We want to see you as you are, the way you want us to see you. We want to know truth. And as we're all pursuing him together, I just believe God is going to do an awesome thing in our church. I sincerely believe in our church's history, we'll be able to look back at this series as a turning point in our church history. I don't say that lightly. I sincerely believe that. But as I looked at the sermon map, and then I saw week three, and I saw my name beside it, and it was the subject of the sovereignty of God. I said, oh, what? <laughs> because uh, this is one of the most controversial subjects in the world of Christianity. It's one of the most challenging subjects to teach and to talk about. This is a subject or a phrase that has split sides of Christianity one against the other. There are believers that are saved, that love God, that are going to spend eternity together, that think they're enemies because of the phrase, the sovereignty of God. And I, I am humbled today as, as I'm going to be talking to you about this. Before we dive into the sovereignty of God and I begin talking, I think it's important to consider that today I am going to be, <laughs> as we try to read the Bible and I try to teach about the sovereignty of God, it's kind of like a five-year-old boy read his dad's journal, and his dad is a judge. And he looked at some of his father's accounts of how he did things in the court and how he uh, did things in his office, and he had some questions, so he went to his dad and said, hey, dad, why did you preside over this case? This well, I guess a five-year-old wouldn't say preside. Um, <laughs> dad, why'd you do what you did? Or why did this guy have this happen? Or why did you choose to do this this way? And the father attempts to explain himself to his five-year-old son. And the five-year-old son goes, oh, okay. And then the five-year-old son goes to all of his five-year-old friends and tries to explain to them why the judge did the things that he did. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's quoted at pretty much every single wedding. and It's talked about in churches all the time. Some of you guys probably have it printed on mugs or t-shirts or paintings on your wall. We know 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter, right? It says love is patient, love is kind, and Paul is really explaining and defining what love looks like. And after he goes through that list explaining love, he then goes off and he says, because listen, all these other things that we think are important, he said, he said prophecy one day is going to end, tongues will cease, knowledge one day is going to end. 
And then he goes on to say, for the things that we know in part, or he says, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And then comes the other scripture that's been famously quoted and taken out of context a lot where he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I reasoned as a child, I behaved as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For we now see in a mirror dimly, but we will then see face to face. Right now we know in part, but then we will know even as we are known. So what is he saying? The Apostle Paul is telling everyone, he's saying, guys, listen, in this life, our understanding of God is like a child's understanding. He said, I once was a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. I put away my childish understanding. I put away my childish behaviors. I put away my childish language because I became a man. And it's in the context of that that he says, right now, we see in a mirror dimly, meaning we kind of see a reflection of what all's going on. But then, talking about when we enter into eternity, we will know even as we are known. Today, I'm a five-year-old boy trying to talk to five-year-old boys and girls about the sovereignty of God. We need to understand this is a subject that is far too weighty for us to understand. We need to understand that we can't fully understand this. Have you ever tried to explain something to your kids and realized there are intellectual limitations preventing you from being able to explain something fully to your kids. And so you try and use words they understand, and you try and use pictures, and you try and say kind of like this and kind of like that, but they don't fully understand. So having said that, I want to pray and ask God to guide us today. God, you're sovereign. And I pray that today as we get into your word, that by your Holy Spirit, you would open eyes and give illumination, that you would help us to see the truth. Throughout this series of the real God, as we have endeavored to seek you and to know you, I pray that you would let that be, that you would let us see you, you said in your word, that if we seek you with all of our hearts, we'll be, that you would be found. So I pray today that Holy Spirit, you, Jesus, you said the Holy Spirit was the spirit of truth that would guide us into all truth. So I ask that today your Holy Spirit would be amongst us and in every one of us to guide us into truth, protect us from error, uh, protect me from pride as I speak today. And God, I pray ultimately that you would be glorified and that the truth of your sovereignty would be a, an incredible comfort to us and an incredible testimony to your glory, your goodness, your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is sovereignty? If we're going to talk about God's sovereignty, what is sovereignty? I've grown up in church, 34 years in church. I'm a pastor's kid, which means Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service, prayer meetings weekly. Um, I went to a Christian school where I had chapel every single day, super chapel on Fridays, which meant we had a band and a guest speaker. That's actually how I know Pastor Derek. Funny little sovereign note there. Um, Super Chapel on Fridays, youth camps, youth conferences, youth retreats, um, summer camps, uh, pastor's conferences with my parents. I'm willing to bet that I've been to more services than probably anyone in this room. And I didn't hear the term, the sovereignty of God, until I was 25 years old. 
Now, there's reasons for that. The reason I, the reasons I had never heard the term the sovereignty of God until I was 25 is because it was not a phrase that is word for word in the Bibles that I had. The translations that I read did not say the sovereignty of God. But there are some translations that say the sovereignty of God over 200 times. Uh, but I didn't read those translations. Uh, and so I had to, uh, when I was 25, the first time I heard the phrase the sovereignty of God, I was working at a Bible school. I was faculty and teaching there. And I had a student uh, that wanted to debate with me. And I love debating. Um, it's a lot of fun, but beyond that, not just that I think it's fun, um, you know, if I believe in something and I have conviction about it, I'm going to stand on it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have fun uh, defending it. And so this student began to talk to me about the sovereignty of God, and I'm sitting here going, what does that mean? I don't know what that is. And uh, so I saw in the other translations where it said sovereignty of God and or actually, in the other translations, it said the sovereign God. The, the term sovereign was a term that was used as a title for God throughout the Old Testament, and several, actually in the New Testament as well, in the other translations. Um, there were many places, over 200, where it said the sovereign God. And so then I looked in my translations and go, okay, what does mine say where that one says the sovereignty of God? My translations say the Lord God. So right there was my first clue into what sovereignty in this context meant, because in my understanding, the Lord God brought me to lordship, ruling, reigning, someone who had authority over someone else. Um, and then beyond that, I began to do a lot more study, a lot more research, because I was kind of stumped uh, by this younger guy in our debate when he was talking about something that I was like, this is a term I don't even know what he's talking about, and he's talking to me like I should know. Um, so I did a lot of research. Uh, so th then is it a question of translation? Is one translation right and the other's wrong? Is it a, a matter of we shouldn't have this translation? This is the only one. Um, no, I think what it comes down to is really we can just consider what is the definition of sovereignty. Because if we look at the definition of sovereignty, that's going to help us decide when we look at Scripture whether or not it says sovereign if God is sovereign. Doesn't matter necessarily word for word whether or not it says it. We can look at the definition and then let's hit Scripture. So sovereignty. The supreme power or authority. The full right and power of a governing body over itself without any er interference from outside sources or bodies. Do you think that those things apply to God? Right? If not, that's why we're doing this series. And that's why we're going to talk about this today. So, so, sovereignty, supreme power or authority. Do you believe God has supreme power? Meaning power above everyone and everything else. There is no power higher or greater than God. Do you believe God has supreme authority? Higher than every other authority. Greater than every other authority. Every other authority answers to God's authority. Every other authority put in place was put there, whether we like it or not, by God. You might not like that. You might not agree. But Scripture is going to say, I don't care. Right? Because if we're asking here whether or not God is sovereign, and we look, sovereign meaning supremely power or authoritative, um, the full right or power of a governing body over itself without interference from outside sources or bodies at least where I stand, without digging too deep into the Bible, I'm going, yeah, sounds right. Sounds to me like God's sovereign. Now, 
whether or not, again, you shouldn't listen to me. You shouldn't come to a landing spot on this because I'm saying so or because Pastor Derek or whoever your favorite preacher is says that. You need to get into the Word of God for yourself. That's what we're going to attempt to do today. But you always need to have your own habits of Bible study, getting into God's Word, handling the truth for yourself, letting the Holy Spirit grow and mature you as a believer yourself. Because guess what? On the day that you stand before God and give an account, you're not going to be standing next to your pastor or your favorite author or your favorite TV preacher, anyone else, you and God. You are responsible. And I love what Bob Utley uh, said when he was here. You, Scripture, and the Holy Spirit take priority. You read the Scripture, and like I said earlier in my prayer, Jesus told his disciples, he said, guys, it's better for you that I go because when I go, my Father will send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and he will guide you into all truth. Man, that's a great, great gift that we have the Holy Spirit inside of each of us to help guide us into all truth. So if we want to know whether or not, if we want to learn about God's character, God's nature, if we want to know whether or not he is a certain thing or a certain way, what's the best place to find it? Pop culture, right? Uh, probably our feelings. You know your feelings lie to you all the time, right? Jeremiah says the heart's deceitful above all things. Your feelings will lie to you all the time. Uh, probably need to check the news. I'm not even going to go there, not even touching that. If we want to know about God, we should listen to our favorite preacher, right? I kind of already teased on that one. How about Christian New York Times bestsellers? No, I, I love them. I love preachers. Uh, I am one. <laughs> Where do we go if we want to learn about God? It's a Sunday school answer. Don't be scared. Where do we go? The Bible. The Word of God, right? How else do you know whether or not something you believe is right or wrong or true? Because like I said, feelings. People go by feelings a lot. People build doctrine off of feelings all the time. The doctrine, some of the things that we're going to be talking about today are things that don't feel good. But it's not, it, it, it's not up to us to determine. Let, I'll say this. Our feelings, our liking it, and our agreeing are not prerequisites for truth. Right? We don't have to feel like we like it or it doesn't have to feel good and we don't have to agree for something to be true. There's still the whole somehow flat earth theory out there. People believe the earth's still flat. I don't even know if we should have gone there, but. <laughs> you can believe you can fly, but you're going to find the bottom of the cliff real fast with your sincere feelings. Right? So again, where do we go when we want to know truth? The word of God. And every preaching, every sermon, every book, every television show, whatever you hear or think of needs to be examined in light of Scripture in context. Scripture in context is what helps us know truth and nature and character of God. So um, a lot of you guys may not know that we do this. We haven't talked about it in a long time. If you have the YouVersion Bible app, 
Um, every single week, we make a live event where you can log in, go to the events, and search for a live event. And every single week, we have our sermon and notes that you can follow along. I say that to say this because we're about to go into the Word of God to uh, examine whether or not God is sovereign. And here's the fun part. If you're already looking, if you already do this, you're like, whoa, snap, this is a long one. And the reason is because I put about 60 scriptures in place that all together, I think, say God's sovereign. Uh, so I'm just going to start on number one, and we'll take the rest of our time today reading these 60 <laughs> scriptures. Just kidding. But we'll go through a few of them. How's that? Psalm 135 and 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. That sounds like a supremely powerful being. Psalms 115.3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That sounds like a supremely authoritative being. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which, have not been, uh, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Sounds like someone who has a seem. Uh, supreme authority and power. Daniel 4 and 35 says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Luke 1 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. If nothing's impossible for him, he has to be supremely powerful and supremely authoritative, right? Job 42 and 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Matthew 19, 26, and looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Sounds like someone who has supreme authority and supreme power, right? Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. If someone is capable of doing more than we can even think of, like I said, we can't even understand. We're five-year-old kids. If someone is capable of doing more than we are even capable of thinking of, I think that being is supremely powerful and supremely authoritative. That's like, I don't know, eight or 10 out of 60. Should we go on? I'll tell you what, look that up and read those for yourself later because we don't have the time to today. Those are just a few quick snips from Scripture, from the Word of God, which is how we should find truth, that are all saying God is supremely powerful and God has supreme authority. God is sovereign. And I want to remind you, as you read the Word of God, there's two ways to read the Word of God. And these are biblical study technical terms. But there's what's called exegesis and eisegesis. No, I didn't say extragesis. Exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is to draw out. It is going to the Scripture to draw out what you believe from Scripture. Eisegesis is imposing your perspective and your beliefs and your ideologies into Scripture. Bad doctrine happens and is very popular and is very famous. Some of the world's most famous preachers practice eisegesis, where they have an idea about God or what they want to believe or what they like to believe about God, and they take that idea to the Scripture to try and back it up. And let me tell you something. That is incredibly dangerous because you can land anywhere you want 
if you do that. I have friends that I have in my mind right now that are living in open sin, that are living in a lifestyle of sin, and they have found bloggers, Christian bloggers and Christian articles and all that to back up what they believe because you can find anyone to agree with you nowadays. On the internet, you can find anyone to back up what you want to believe, but that's eisegesis, which is a bad practice. It is putting what we want into Scripture and looking for a verse we can take out of context to say, ha-ha, see, God said it, rather than keeping Scriptures in context and uh, developing from there. God is sovereign because He is before all things. Scripture teaches us He's before all things. I'd encourage you, again, to go to the YouVersion app so you can look these notes up and read them later. And you can even go, we leave them live for a week. You can look at these. I want to encourage you later to go back and look at all these scriptures. God is before all things. Here's a fun one for our brain to wrap around. God existed eternally before time. Before our earth was created, God existed. When our earth is done and time is fulfilled and complete, God will continue to exist eternity. God is before all things. Nothing exists that God did not bring into pass. Time is something that God made for this earth. Time did not exist until God created time. He is before all things. God created all things. If you ever want a scenario where you can talk about the sovereignty of God, let's go ahead and visit creation. Because the Bible teaches us that God didn't even lift a finger in creation. He spoke and said, let there be, and it was. Everything that we know and see and feel and touch and see and hear and smell, God created all of it by speaking. And the fun part, man, I did a lot of research lately and I wish I had time for it, but just on the spans of the universe and the observable universe and how big it is and how massive it is and the fine-tuning of our universe, the fact that if our universe is specifically within our galaxy and then dialed within to our solar system and the distance of our earth from our sun and things like that, and if it was just a fraction, I mean a fraction closer, how we would all burn to death. And if it was just a fraction further, we would all freeze to death, even though we almost did this week. <laughs> that God, sovereignly with his power and authority, created the universe. Do you ever go outside at night and look at the stars and just allow yourself to be stirred in awe? Two years ago, my wife and I went to Arizona. We went on a little vacation and uh, it hit me. It was like, oh, man, didn't even think about this. We're going to Arizona. The Grand Canyon's there. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? You know. You go to the Grand Canyon. You drive up to it. You look at it. You go, whoa. Wow. God. Whoa. Stirs wonder in your heart. Creation does. Shame on us that we forget how incredible, powerful, wonderful, sovereign our God is. He created all things. He's sovereign because he upholds all things. Hebrews 1 tells us that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. 
that incredible universe that he created and spoke into existence. He is currently at this very moment sustaining it and holding it. The reason you're breathing breath right now is because he's sustaining you and upholding you at this very moment. You think it's your diaphragm and your subconscious and your nerves and your brain and your lungs. It is the power of the sovereign God giving you life at this moment, upholding all things by the word of his power. God is sovereign because he is above all things. Multiple times in scripture, we see where it says that, and because uh, Jesus obeyed his father into the cross, that he has given him the name that is exalted high above every name, that at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is above all things. He's sovereign. Here's a fun one I love. He knows all things. God is infinitely wise. Um, I, uh, I, I, there's a movie, I, I want to say it was over a decade ago, maybe more like 15 years. There's a movie called uh, The Mothman Prophecies, I think is what it was called. It was a weird movie, trippy, kind of interesting movie, but uh, a thriller. But the, the premise of this movie was that there was these entities, these beings, it's kind of a sci-fi thriller, and that these strange things were happening. And there was this guy, Richard Gere, that uh, I can't remember his character's name, but he begins to try and figure out what's going on. And he begins to try and research and see if he can figure out what, what's all this weird stuff that's happening. And he goes to visit this quote-unquote expert. And he's like, well, if they're trying to say something to us, why don't they just explain themselves to us? And I love his answer. He said, have you ever tried to explain yourself to a cockroach? <laughs> now, that's a line from a movie a, a, a fictional story about these entities, but it made me go, hmm, because how often do we want God to explain things to us? Have you ever tried to explain yourself to a cockroach? I'm not trying to belittle you. I'm trying to put you in proper context of your relationship with God. Your knowledge to God's is like that, okay? He knows all things. Science has told us that there are more stars in the universe than there, are, uh, than there is sand on the shores of earth, than there is grains of sand on earth. That they also have told us that one grain of sand has more atoms and molecules than all the stars in the universe. Consider that for a moment and think about the fact that God is mindful of every single one of them. Now, that can do two things. That can make us go, whoa, God, oh, no, I'm not worthy. And, and it's true, we're not worthy, but he loves us so much that he made us worthy. He claimed us. He called us by his love. But also, Jesus said, the very number of hairs on your head are numbered. The very hair on your head are numbered. Is that significant? Is that important? Does it matter in the big picture? I know for some of you it's easier to count than others. He, <laughs> he, hey, it's going to be me soon. Why should God care about how many hairs are on our head? I love that because it tells me he cares about every single detail of our lives. He knows everything, beginning to end, inside and out. He knew you were before you were born. It says in Psalms, before I formed you, I knew you. He knows all things. God is sovereign because he can do all things. As we read in those scriptures earlier, said, with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. There's nothing too difficult for him. God is sovereign because he accomplishes all things. We read several scriptures where he said, I will do what I want. 
He accomplishes his will, and no one can step in his way. He is sovereign because he rules over all things. He rules over all things. Like I said earlier, I'm not going to get into politics, but whether or not you like who's in office, because the chances are in the last decade you've liked someone or disliked someone, and then beyond that, even longer. Listen, we do our part. You should vote. That's all I'm going to say about that. But guess who makes the ultimate decision? That's what the Bible teaches. Go look at those verses later. The Bible teaches that God controls the governments that are put in place. See it all throughout Scripture. Again, you can argue with me, but take your arguments up with Scripture. So, God is sovereign because of all those things. He's before all things. He created all things. He upholds all things. He is above all things. He knows all things, can do all things, accomplishes all things, rules over all things, and is in control of all things. I'd encourage you again, please go home and read these passages. Go home and read the Word of God for yourself. As we talk about the sovereignty of God, there's some pretty significant intellectual issues about the sovereignty of God. There are also some pretty big biblical issues about the sovereignty of God. But when we finish today, I believe that what God would want you to get more than anything else is that the sovereignty of God is perhaps the most comforting aspect of his character. It's not one that we probably just by default think that way, but the sovereignty of God should be to the Christian the most comforting aspect of his character. Because in the midst of a fallen world full of pain and difficulty and mystery and mistakes and betrayals and hurts and a world of terrorism and sex trade and radical Islam and upside-down economics and corruption, I believe the most comforting attribute of God is that he is sovereign, supremely powerful, supremely authoritative. There are many ways that God reveals his sovereignty. He reveals his sovereignty through his titles. Through scripture, depending on what translation you said, uh, you read, he's called the Lord God or the sovereign God. Many times in scripture, he said, uh, he is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is called the Most High God. He is called the Alpha and the Omega. He's called the beginning and the end. There are titles in Scripture that reveal his sovereignty. He reveals his sovereignty through his promises. How could God fulfill his promises if he was not sovereign? Ever broke a promise? We should strive not to, but I have. And most of us flawed humans have. God's never failed a promise. And he can and does keep all of his promises. Why? Because he's sovereign and there's nothing and no one, no force that can stop his promises from coming to pass. He reveals his sovereignty through prophecy. Consider there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scriptures that are prophetic. A third of the Bible is prophetic, is prophecy. And not a single prophecy in scripture has failed. In fact, uh, there's, there's accounts in the book of Daniel where uh, Daniel, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he began to prophesy about the kingdom and the next three kingdoms that were going to come to power in his day and age. And he prophesied that with such meticulous accuracy that liberal scholars today look back at the book of Daniel and go, you know what, this couldn't have been written when they say it was written because it's too accurate. 
unbelievers are saying this couldn't have been written when it says it was written because there's no way they could have known those things unless maybe a sovereign God had something to do with it. Prophecy is one of the ways God reveals his sovereignty. Another way is through miracles. Another thing miracles are called in scripture is signs and wonders. There were many times Jesus performed miracles and the Pharisees got mad about it and Jesus would say, in fact, there's the story where the, the friends bring their crippled friend to Jesus to this house where Jesus is teaching and the friends, uh, they can't get in because it's packed. What do they do? They climb up on the roof, tear the roof apart. Like, wow, that's bold. They lower the friend down through the roof in front of Jesus and Jesus tells the friends, uh, looks at the man, uh, he says, arise your or, or be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. And the religious people, they get mad. The Pharisees, they go, who is he to say that his sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. And Jesus knows their thoughts, and he says, why are you guys grumbling? He said, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? I mean, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because we can't see if that actually happens. It's harder to say, get up and walk, because that dude's been lame since birth. And Jesus says, but so you will know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Do you hear that sovereign statement right there? Get up and walk. And he does. That miracle was a sign to who Jesus was. He's asleep in the boat one day with his disciples going across the Sea of Galilee. What happens? Storms are coming. This water's coming into the boat. The disciples are freaking out. They're like, Jesus is asleep. Does he not care? Jesus, wake up. Don't you care? We're all about to die. Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. Goes up to the front of the boat and says, guys, okay, peace be still. The storm stops. And the disciples wig out. And they say, notice what they say. They didn't say, how did he? They say, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey this man. He's the sovereign God of the universe. Through Christ, God has revealed his sovereignty. The plan of redemption. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. The plan to redeem fallen humanity with Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when we saw the picture painted that if someone wanted to have their sins atoned, they had to bring a perfect spotless lamb to the priests in the tabernacle to slaughter that lamb that was perfect and spotless and that blood was going to cover or atone their sins for the year. And then we fast forward to the New Testament where John the Baptist is in the Jordan River converting people and baptizing them into repentance. And he sees Jesus approaching in the distance and he says, he yells out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because he was the spotless, without sin, Lamb of God that would fulfill his Father's plan before the foundations of the earth to pay for your sin and my sin and bring us back into fellowship with a holy, righteous God. What a great God. What a sovereign God to write and fulfill that plan that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies with God. When I was a rebel, 
caught up in self-righteousness, thinking I was so good that God would love me and accept me. He looked on the sinner, Stephen, and said, I impose my love on you. I sovereignly sent my son to die. And you don't deserve it, but that's how good I am. God reveals his sovereignty through his son. Which brings us to two big questions. I thought I might cry today. <laughs> Subject of the sovereignty of God brings two big questions always. And here's the one that splits hairs and cuts the body in half a lot of times. Do we have free will or does God control our will? Here's the quick answer. Yes. Here's the deal. This question deserves an entire sermon, maybe an entire series. It's important that we are aware of something. We live in a modern Western culture, which means it's harder for us as Americans to properly interpret Scripture than it is for any other culture that's ever existed on the face of the earth because we are the farthest removed from the biblical culture that the Scripture was written in. Scripture was written in. We live in a modern Western culture. We need the Holy Spirit dearly as we attempt to interpret Scripture. There's a book that I would recommend, and I recommend it with caution, because like with any book, like I've already said, I don't 100% agree with all of it, but I agree with a lot of it, most of it, and it's an incredibly a great book uh, called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. It talks about how in Eastern culture, the Bible was written to people that see the world differently than we do. And because we're in a modern Western culture, when we look at certain words and certain phrases and certain things that happen in the Bible, we interpret them differently than the people who the Bible was written to would have interpreted them. It's a great book. It's a powerful book. But here's something. Bob Utley talked to us about this also. In Eastern culture and in Eastern literature, ancient Eastern literature and culture, very often were two seemingly opposing ideas presented that seem to be opposing to each other, not working together. And in ancient Eastern culture, that was very common. And they would go, these two things are opposite sides of one road, two lanes on one road, and we live in the tension between the two. Big debate is predestination or free will. Does God control our will or do, do we have free will? The answer is yes, because there's scripture for both. Here's what we do, though. This is dangerous. What we do is we pick the one we like, and we sacrifice the other biblical truth for the biblical truth that we like more. When they can live in harmony, in fact, and it, they're supposed to live in harmony, and we're supposed to live in the tension, because guess what? We're supposed to go, I don't get it, but they're both there, and I'm going to trust you with it. And pursue you either way. Like Paul said, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. They're both there. There's tons of scriptures that argue both sides. And I personally want to say, this one's right. And that one's wrong because of these verses. But I'm not going to let myself do what I want to do because they're both there and we can't sacrifice biblical truth for the ones that we find more palatable for the ones that we like. Well, Stephen, how can those, those both be true? That doesn't make sense. Please help me understand how it makes sense that someone could walk on water. 
Please help me understand how it makes sense that someone could speak creation. Please help me understand how it makes sense that someone could have existed before and after time. God does not make sense. You have to have faith. And these things in Scripture that seem to both be there, we don't have the right to go, I don't like that, and throw that page away. What we ought to do is humbly approach Scripture and go, you're God, and I'm not. And I'm just going to trust you with all this stuff I don't get. See, if today you're hyper-Calvinistic, meaning God has sovereignly ordained every single thing, every, every tiny, every particle of dust that's floating through the air, God has put it there and ordained it to be as it is. Or if you're on the Arminian side where it's like, nope, God has free, given everyone free will and everything happens that way, you're both wrong. And you're partially right, but we're called to live in the tension. Listen, I don't like what I'm saying right now. But the word of God is the word of God, and I'm a human. We're five-year-olds talking about grown men stuff. We don't have the right to sacrifice one biblical truth for another. It's really a great thing when you decide, you know what, I don't have to make excuses for God anymore. His word is his word. That's that. I just made some of you mad. That's all right. At the end of the day, I'm going to stand before God for what I'm saying today, so I'm going to say what I believe what I believe I see in scripture. And finally, the other question that comes up is the big one we all deal with. If God is sovereign, then why? Right? If God has supreme power and if he has supreme authority, meaning no one can stop him from doing what he wants to do, then why did this happen in my life? I approach this carefully. Because many of you have suffered in ways that I can't even mention or talk about, honestly, that I can't fathom. We struggle accepting the sovereignty of God because we've all seen, felt, or experienced severe pain and indescribable suffering. How can we reconcile last week's sermon of the goodness of God, right, and the sovereignty of God? Because we look around and it's all messed up right? How do you reconcile the two? Well, one, we remind ourselves what we were just talking about. He's God. He's smarter than I am. But also, Scripture talks a lot about suffering. Talks a lot about suffering. It's a difficult thing for us to accept. It's a difficult, here's the deal, nobody likes it, nobody wants it. But the truth is that it's good for us, our ultimate good. Uh, there's a C.S. Lewis quote from his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, on the one hand, if God is wiser than we, his judgment must differ from ours on many things, and not least on good and evil. What seems to us good may therefore not be good in his eyes. And what seems to us evil may not be evil. There are things in this life I believe that we think are bad that God's going, I see why you think that, but it's actually good for you. Have you ever withheld something from your kids and it made them think that you're bad? 
but because you are good and loving as a parent, you said no? Have you ever disciplined your children? And they're going, eh, the whole, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No. Have you ever disciplined your children? My two-year-old daughter, time to time, thinks I'm bad probably. Because she's two. There are things in your life that are good for you that don't feel good because God is good, because he loves you. He allows us to go through suffering because scripture teaches us in 1 John that we can't love this world. This is not our home, guys. This is not our home. And we want it to be. We like our comfort. We want smooth sailing, easy breezy. We want happiness, health, wealth, prosperity all the time. Those things are not evil of themselves. But what happens is, remember, money's not the root of all evil. What is? The love of money is the root of all evil. What's that mean? The heart issue, our desire for money is the root of all evil. And I'm not just talking about money, but what I am getting to is God is so smart and so loving that he says, sometimes I'm going to allow things in your life that will remind you that this world is not your home. Don't get comfortable here. Don't love your stuff more than me. Don't love this world. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. We're on our way home. This is not the end. You can talk to any pregnant woman, especially when they're at full term, and they're like, I'm ready for this to be over with. Why? Because pregnancy is not the goal. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's wonderful. But the goal is the life after. This earth is our womb. It is a sliver of time in eternity. If you took a rope and you ran it that way to the east, no, that's south, I guess. If you ran it that way to the east and that way to the north, eternally that way and eternally this way, and you put a dot on it with a sharpie, that dot is this earth and time. Scripture says life is a vapor. And if you could even magnify that sharpie dot and go to like a molecule on it, that's your life on this dot. A vapor. And we want to love this vapor so much. We want our comfort on this vapor so much. And there is eternity before and after. There is eternity existing that is more important than God looks at you wanting your eternal best. And sometimes the only way for that to happen is to allow us to be carved and purged and refined through the fire of affliction. Because God is wiser than we are. And he knows what we need. Sometimes the things we want are not the things. I, I don't want to suffer. No one does. But you have to tear out a lot of pages of the Bible to get away from that. We are called to suffer with Christ. And I pray that anytime you're sick, I pray for healing. And I trust God when it doesn't happen. Anytime it, it can be mental, it can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be any array of things. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But here is the comfort. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a significant promise. We're not promised a life free of suffering or tribulation. In fact, in John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In James chapter 1, the apostle James said, when you go through suffering or trial or tribulation, he said, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And when patience has had its perfect work, you'll be perfect, lacking nothing. Count it joy when you go through these things, knowing that God is working in you, perfecting you for the perfect day. Take this home. Nothing will come into my life today that he did not either allow or decree for my ultimate good. Nothing today and nothing ever. If there's something in your life, he either allowed it or decreed it for your ultimate good. For your ultimate good. Not meaning your immediate good, your ultimate good. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Here we go. Look at this wording that Paul says. He says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Listen to me. Your suffering is not random, without meaning, or bad for you. On the contrary, it actually works for your ultimate good. That scripture just told us that this light and momentary affliction, and I say that with the utmost respect because some of you have experienced and will experience suffering that light sounds laughable and insulting. But when you compare it with the eternal weight of the glory of God face to face with the sovereign God of the universe for eternity, when we're there, we will look back at the speck of time and go, that was light, and that was momentary, and it was so worth it. And I am so thankful for what it worked in me. So how do we respond to the sovereign God of the universe? How do we respond to his sovereignty? Absolute surrender of all we are and all we have. Another quote from C.S. Lewis. One time he said, Christianity... If false, is of no importance. If true, is of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. That was written to America. We love our comfort. We love our casual Christianity. We love our check mark. We love our check in, check out. I went to church, did my good thing. said, if Christianity is true and if the word of God is true, if God is sovereign, this can't, you cannot be a casual Christian. Our theme for the year is serious faith. 
There's no such thing as casual Christianity. If the Bible is true and if God is sovereign, he requires and he demands and he deserves everything. Next, we believe that everything that comes into our life was either allowed or decreed by God who will use it for our benefit, for our good. And finally, we absolutely refuse to worry. I'm not saying that's easy. Biblically, we're called to not worry. Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't worry. Seek first the kingdom of God and all this will be added unto you. We have to practice Philippians 4, 6, and 7 where it says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and he will guard your heart and mind and give you the peace that passes all understanding. When you're in suffering, when you're in affliction, when you have things that you're worried about, just say, God, I'm going to cast that care on you. Please help me not worry about it. Help me to trust you, because if God is sovereign, and if he is supremely powerful and has supreme authority, what an insult to him is our worry. What an insult to him is our worry. I don't say that to condemn you if you worry or if you struggle, but I say that to call you to attempt to cast your worries and your cares on him and to say, God, I don't get it. I don't know it all. I can't see it now. I may not see it in this lifetime, but I'm going to trust you because you're God and I'm not. I said that the sovereignty of God is the most comforting aspect of his character and his nature. The question is, which world would you rather live in? One where humans or Satan or chance govern what happens to you? Or the one where the infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful God works everything together for the good of those who trust him and for his glory? Sovereignty ought to comfort you when you're in suffering. You ought to know, ah, this hurts and this is not easy and I don't like it, but... I know God's good and he's sovereign. So I'm going to cling to that and I'm going to let it comfort me that he's in control. And if something doesn't make sense or if something's not the way I want, I'm going to trust God. And if I want to and I can't just say, God, help me trust you in your sovereignty. Spurgeon said, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all or redeem them all. There is nothing for which the child ought to more earnestly contend than the doctrine of the master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon the throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust." 